This is episode 92. It's called, Everyone Needs This Book. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our podcast. If you're new here, I'm Lisa. I'm Avery's mom. Avery is our 17-year-old daughter who has an unofficially unnamed chromosome deletion duplication disorder. And uh, that comes with developmental and intellectual disabilities and epilepsy and just a mixed bag of medical complexities. And But that does not define who she is, obviously. So I asked her what she would like you to know about her. So she told me to tell you that in no particular order, she's a cheerleader. And actually, her team is going to be representing Canada for uh, Team Canada at Worlds in Orlando this April. So we're very excited about that. She loves animals. She loves little kids. And she also wants you to know that she's trying out next week for a special Olympics basketball team. So she's currently very busy shopping for new pink basketball shoes online. So love it. This podcast is, um, it's about our life as a family of four. It's kind of a look at us navigating the world of disabilities and just life in general. And we keep it pretty casual over here. And we're often kind of just ridiculous. But we also share some of the more serious struggles, plus any strategies that we're trying to use to make life easier and happier and just, you know, better. So this episode, I think it might be my favorite episode so far this year, or maybe ever because of this guest. I'm very excited. Today, I get to talk with Kelly Coleman. Kelly is a feature film development exec turned author and advocate for parent caregivers and individuals with disabilities. She lives in LA with her husband, her two boys, one of whom has multiple disabilities and their son's service dog. And Avery is very, very interested in that. She is super active in the disability advocacy community, and she's just really cool. I was telling a friend that I was interviewing Kelly today, and I'm like, she's so cool. She's way cooler than me. My friend didn't argue. So, (laughs) I mean, you should see Kelly's press photos. Like, there's this one of Kelly. She's fully dressed in business cash, and she's holding this... Uh, best mom ever coffee cup. And she's working on in her actual laptop at the bottom of a swimming pool. Like it is a, it is a vibe and I love it. Kelly's book is called Everything No One Tells You About Parenting a Disabled Child, Your Guide to the Essential Systems, Services and Supports. And her book stems from her own parenting experience. I definitely would have been all over this book if it had been available in the beginning of our disability um, adventure. I'm going to call it. This book is about giving parents the tools to spend less time navigating the stuff. You know, you know the stuff. And more time just loving their kids for exactly who they are. I mean, come on. This is the book that we've all needed. And now it's nearly here. It comes out on March 12th. And it's going to be, you heard it here, a go-to handbook for so many parents. Like I wish there had been something like that when Avery was little because there just wasn't. And I felt I felt pretty alone and lost. And I think that this book is going to spare so many parents from that feeling. Hey everyone, it's a very bright line. 
It sure is. Your life is so bright. I gotta wear shades. We are so happy that you're here with us. Let's do this thing. Here we go. So we're going to start talking about the book in just a minute. But first, let's get to know a little bit more about Kelly, aka my new best friend, and her family. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to A Very Bright Life. I was going to start this interview with, can we be friends? <laughs> I just love all the things. So like, we're best friends now, right? Um, 100% we are. I will make you a bracelet. And if you're ever in Toronto, just come on over. Avery and I will take you out for lunch. Maybe we'll go up the CN Tower or something. I love Toronto. Okay, it's a date. So just to get a little picture of who you are, what your life is like, what would a typical kind of day look like for you and your family? Typical day, I usually wake up around five because my body is used to needing to get up very early. And um, I pretend like I'm going to have a cup of coffee and play Wordle, but instead I'm getting the feeding tube supplies ready and all of the vitamins and the supplements and the medicines and making sure the school bags are packed for one of my kids that's you know a lunch and his homework in the tuba and for my <laughs> other kid tuba does not go in the backpack by the way um and for my other kid that's are there diapers and wipes and backup feeding tubes and the meds and the bandanas for the drool and the whatever form there are always forms i'm like i am signing forms. so many forms honestly right yeah um and by the way and this is all happening by like 6 a.m and you know you wake up and you do the rush to get everybody out of bed which includes lots of reading books listening to the first 15 seconds of the ducktales theme song a lot <laughs> and we have a dance and like we do our thing for 15 seconds on repeat a lot and somewhere in there the dog gets a walk and the boys get to school um on school days i've been fortunate to be able to be writing and working on a book i'm a writer by trade so it's been nice to be able to jump back into that when kids are at school mm -hmm. and as you and many others know afternoons are a cross between therapies and calling insurance companies and getting ready for an IEP meeting and blinking and it's all over. And hopefully in there, we're going to the park, going to the grocery store mm -hmm. and doing fun family things. And also hopefully a conversation with my husband at some point. <laughs> so I'm so, hearing that you're not, you're not busy at all. No, you're just no. sitting around you know, twiddling your thumbs, yeah. going to the spa. People yeah. Who are like, you should, you should go get a massage. I'm like, Cool. Add that to the list. Yeah, that sounds pretty typical. Yeah, I hear yeah. you. So you've said, I've heard you say that a lot of us have kind of the same diagnosis story. So you're told your kid has this thing. Good luck with that. And so we go home and we Google it and try not to freak out. And yeah. even though we're told, avoid the internet, don't go down that rabbit hole, like as if, as if we're not going to take that deep dive like we do. Yeah. So Aside from take everything with a grain of salt, everything that you hear online with a grain of salt, what advice do you think you would give to parents who are starting their journey of parenting a disabled child? So it's, a, it's I'm, I'm going to sneak in a two-part answer to that. But sure, do it. First is if you are feeling 
overwhelmed and all the things and inadequate and like you don't know what you're doing yes Mm -hmm. you are right on track and let's start with just validating that is where we all feel and that helps to alleviate some of the guilt and the shame and the like my head is spinning and then once you've got your head wrapped around the fact that like oh this is how I'm supposed to feel because no one tells us anything of like and here's what to do Uh you will probably for the rest of your life if you have a kid with a disability have a to-do list that is ever present and will always be there of all of the stuff and if you're just like nope don't want to do any of it but you know you have to do all of it pick one thing have it be a small thing where you can find a victory Whether that is emailing your child's teacher and finding out if their related services, aka therapies, are being delivered as planned during the school day. Mm -hmm. Check that off the list. You have an answer. Whether that is pursuing the reimbursement from the insurance company. You know what? When you get a check in the mail, it feels great. Take on something small and get a victory so you feel like, oh, I can do this. And then all of the other stuff becomes manageable and you're able to set up systems to actually get it done. I Nothing brings me more joy than putting a little tick mark beside that to-do oh, thing. Yes. Like, and even just writing it in and then ticking it off when you've already yes. done it, right? Because yes. it's, it's so satisfying. That is exactly what you said is literally how I wrote a book. I made a grid of here are the chapters, here's what's in each chapter. And I was checking boxes in the grid until like the whole grid was filled in. That's self-care. Like if people are like, you're a weirdo. And I'm like, yep. And it works. You embrace it. Oh my gosh. We are best friends. Honestly, my, I have to-do lists to make to-do lists because you can get some of that stuff out of your brain and onto paper and you feel like you have some sense of control. That nails it exactly. And literally in my author bio in the book, it says in my free time, I make lists of things that I would do if I had free time because <laughs> it's true. But exactly what you just said of control. Yeah. And I think that is so often at the core of all these big feelings we're having of I'm overwhelmed, I'm inadequate, I'm anxious, like whatever your feelings are, is because all of a sudden, this parenting journey that you were like, control, I got this. I read a book. I went to a class at the hospital. <laughs> they taught me how to diaper a doll. Like I Exactly. Um, it seems like you have control and how this is going to go. And most of us are wholly unprepared for disability in our families, mm-hmm. for the job of being a caregiver, which is a full-time job for which there's no training. Bananas. So we need to be honest about what we can control and what we can't control cannot control my son's genetic makeup that is just who he is and so we have if we're not leaning into that we're gonna make Uh life much harder on everyone but can I control the fact that my insurance company is obligated to pay for x y and z and they rejected that claim I sure can Uh I so I'm so hearing you and also just gonna add I think I'm quite a bit older than you are but my brain I cannot retain information so I feel like if I have a list and a graph and a chart which is also color coded yes. I feel like I'm not gonna forget those things or like did I did I send that receipt in did I do that yeah it's comforting oh to gosh. have I want to hang out with you and just look at infographics all day <laughs> right? totally totally I'm in and by the way I'm 47 so there's no way that you're 
older than me. Well, I was born um, a little bit earlier than you. Anyway, um, you know, you and I are on the same page that having a disabled child, I could never imagine my life being what it is, but I am so grateful for it. But, you know, not going to lie, it also has challenges and some aspects are kind of tough, but this life that we are living is not a tragedy that is worth pitying. I have lost friends over conversations where people have told me how bad they feel for us or how hard our life must be or how sorry they feel for us. Like our, our existence is just such a hardship. And I'm just like, I realize that they probably didn't mean it to come out the way that it did, but you know, they didn't mean to sound like a-holes, but <laughs> just not the most sensitive things to say. And I'm like, you know what? My life is fantastic. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, but I get how it could look on the outside because what people don't see often, well, they see some of it on social media, but they don't see all the happy little moments and all the things that we're so grateful for. But I really like what you said about leaning into the love part of it and really just getting to know our kids for the amazing, unique humans that they are and finding the meaning in it. I just love that. And the meaning for me, or at least part of it is, you know, being given this gift, not only of being able to love such a happy, joyful person, but also the gift of being able to share her with the world and to show people what it really looks like to what it really means to parent a disabled child and being an advocate for Avery and for other disabled young people. It just feels very meaningful for me. So my question um, is, do you feel pressure? Like I feel pressure sometimes being an advocate and specifically like as a non-disabled person writing a book about parenting a disabled child, Mm -hmm. did you run into any challenges as a non-disabled person, like entering the disability space? What's interesting is the challenges that I encountered, I think were different than a lot of people encounter on the internet. Um, when I, I interviewed over 40 experts for the book, many of whom, and some of the parents who contributed, I have many disabled adults who contributed. When I was approaching them from this place of like, I need you and your expertise, otherwise this fails. Mm -hmm. Um, people have been so wonderful and forthcoming. And I think willing and genuinely interested in engaging in a dialogue because I want to listen and learn first. And the book is really, it's a caregiving handbook. It's not, here's how to do disability because that's not my book to write. I am glad you brought that up. I am 100% certain that the book will be out in the world and I will get piled on with trolls and people and people who haven't read the book and people Mm -hmm. have too much time on their hands saying, how dare you write a book that touches on disability as a non-disabled person? Mm -hmm. And I asked a number of my experts about that and they were saying, it is messy. You have no choice but to be in with this community in some way. And the reality is the book is about how to do all the stuff just because you are disabled doesn't mean you're awesome at doing paperwork mm-hmm. because yeah. no, like it's awful. Nobody likes paperwork, but I'm weirdly good at it. Um, I think we all need to acknowledge coming into any demographic group when you are not 
a card carrying member of the group, but you are coming in as an ally. Mm -hmm. We need to listen and learn and not, but, but, and we also need to find a way to not erase our own experience. The internet is full of people who believe that non-disabled parents should sort of erase their own experience in favor of their child's firsthand experience as a disabled person. And I say that is not real and it is not helpful if we're erasing the experience of, of caregivers and we're not talking about all of the things. Um, certainly anything I talk about with either of my children is with their consent and with a prior conversation from my family i am not revealing private information that could come back to yeah my kids later and also epilepsy is not a blessing in our house nope i've no never way talked to a person who's like i am so glad i have epilepsy and i'm really happy i'm having seizure right now mm-hmm. no like, that's not real and I love that you talk about so much of what is real and not just oh this is joyful but talking about you know when you've talked about when your kid says what's the r word like we need to talk about that with our children we need to talk about the reality of the things that are hard so Mm -hmm. they know they are not the hard thing you as a human are not the problem The problem is the person who is using the R word on the playground. The problem is the sidewalk that never got a curb cut. So we have to go into the street when we're using a wheelchair Mm -hmm. and that's not safe and that's not okay. And being real about what are the, again, back to what we can control and what we can't, what are the actual problems? Um, People who pity us because we are noisy and dancing in the grocery store that is all on them. We need to choose how we are approaching all of the things. So a long-winded answer to say, (laughs) I'm doing my best. I want to be an ally. I hope I get it right. I'm elevating disabled voices at every turn. You are. Thank you. And you you said before too about relying on the information from other people and listening. I think a lot of the the, the blowback that we sometimes get as non-disabled parents raising disabled kids is some of us dig our heels in and refuse to listen or change our perspective. And I think if you just have an open conversation and you're willing to go, oh yeah, you know, maybe I didn't look at it that way um, and validate other people's experiences, which you're doing, I think that's the best we can do. And I think it's, I think it's pretty damn good. I think so too. I think, I believe the statistic is 80% or just over 80% of children with disabilities are growing up in a household where no one shares their disability. And we need to talk about that because Mm -hmm. we need to give parents and caregivers a role and a thing to do. Otherwise, like we're just making it up. We need to figure that piece out in a way where we can say, I am actively seeking out and listening to people with lived disability experience and I am taking that and matching that to my child's lived experience. And Mm -hmm. also these people with all this great or terrible advice aren't living in my house and they're not planning the rest of their lives around caregiving for my child in the way that I am. 
um, how can we put all the pieces together and say, I am the expert in my own experience? How can I raise my child who will never be fully independent to have agency in his own life? But at the same time, like I might be changing diapers when I'm 90. I know. Yeah, it is. I also love what you said. You said about you don't vilify people who use certain terms. Like I, I'm just going to say, I can be a little bit judgy sometimes. I'm taking ownership of that, Mm -hmm. but I realize that it's not my job to correct people's language. I can put out, out there what I am using and why I'm using those terms. And you've said that the shift in language is a journey, which is true. And you use disabled as a descriptor as just part of who your son is. So Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts about the ever-evolving language around disability? Like it's a tricky one. Mm -hmm. So language, and again, I love that you dig into this in other episodes as well. So everybody go listen to all the episodes if you haven't heard. Thank you. Um, First, we need to acknowledge that all language is evolving always. And if we can just agree that we are going to involve that too, involve and evolve, with the language, then that's a really good starting point. When I first sold the book proposal and when I first was writing this book, the phrase special needs was in there. Mm -hmm, Definitely. Yeah. I was still using that. And we need to acknowledge that is what we grew up with. And we as parents and our generation, we are is still grappling with the, well, it says special education. Well, I just set up a mm-hmm. special needs trust. I've Googled special needs Los Angeles and found all these good resources. The language is there and it's not going to suddenly disappear. Mm-hmm. However, when you talk to actual disabled people, um, no one has ever said to me, I prefer special needs. Um, and what I hear so often is that disability is the word that is used in law saying my child has exceptional needs, special needs, like whatever, does not offer them any protections under the law. And so if we are looking to use the word disability as a neutral description, it is not negative to say my child is disabled. It's also not saying he's an inspiration and a superhero and all those like he is he is a 10-year-old boy. Like he he's not interested in being your inspiration. He's interested in like dancing at the grocery store. So it is neutral. It's not good. It's not bad. It just is. It is the word that is used in law. And it is the word that the disability community has chosen. And I feel like they get to choose. I don't get to choose. And again, things that you've touched on previously, that very often people with physical disabilities and people with intellectual disabilities might have different takes on language might, frankly, sometimes people don't care. With people of any disability, I've talked to so many adults who've said, I am infantilized and treated like a child. And I'm going to work in the White House this morning because that's my job. And I'm like a government official. So we do need to stop infantilizing people with disabilities And that includes people with intellectual disabilities. And we need to acknowledge that having an intellectual disability is also not inherently good or bad. And if I say that my child has an intellectual or cognitive disability, which he does, 
when people are like, oh, don't say that. <laughs> Why not? And if I'm not saying that as just a neutral, no big deal thing, and I'm like, we can't say he's disabled, mm-hmm. then that's inherently saying, because disabled is bad and scary and we don't want that. And I'm like, I want my kid and he's disabled. So come on in, dude. Well, it totally. I mean, I feel like because I grew up in the 70s and 80s and back in olden times, if you said disabled, it was, it was a diss. If you called somebody disabled, it was, I've I've talked about this before. It's akin to using the, the R word. And so I feel like the, the best practice is to just defer to people in the disabled community and take their lead, even though it's uncomfortable for us, Mm -hmm. it's not our call. That's, thank you. That's exactly it. And I love that you said this is uncomfortable Mm -hmm. because I will say for myself, changing my language from special needs, which I used for years because I was coming into this from a place of ignorance. So of course I'm making it up as I go along, which is a terrible idea. So making it up as I go along, using the term special needs, and then talking to disabled people and shifting my language, it felt weird and awkward every single time. Same. And that's okay. And if I'm in conversation with someone and they're saying, tell me about your son with special needs, tell me, and I'm like, I'm so glad that you used that term because it gives us an opportunity to talk about and not saying here's what you need to do and pointing the finger, but saying the term that I have come to use and we use in my family is disabled because that is what I have learned from disabled people. I will not vilify anyone for being on their own journey with language. I am certain language I use in this book a decade from now will be outdated, period. Oh yeah. Cause I mean, yeah, it goes at lightning speed, but see everything you just said, this is why you are such an amazing advocate really. And I need to be more like you and not so hot headed, but you know, it's a journey as you said before. It, it's hard. Well, and for me, the times when I feel hot headed about it are people that I feel like, you know, better and you are choosing to ignore that which makes me feel like you are choosing to ignore my son and the disability community when it is, you know, when it's, it's like a kindly old couple at the, at the market, at the mall. And they say something like, you know what? Thank you. And you have a great day. Absolutely. A close friend or family member or someone when it's like, we've talked about this. Yeah. And you are, actively choosing to dig in on something, you know, when a friend says, oh, that's so enter the R word. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, what? That's when I get hot headed. Yeah. That's when I make a scene in the burrito place in front of my children. And they're like, mom, I'm like, well, you know, it's just 2024. So that just doesn't fly. But yeah, Yeah, I think we're people at the burrito place are like, have some more salsa. Good work, mom. Yeah. Give them the extra spicy and don't tell them. Exactly. (laughs) Um, so (laughs) exactly now I want tacos anyway. Um, so I'm going to switch gears. I'm just going to say that I saw that you had shared a story about your son when he was in the hospital, you were trying to get the seizures to stop been there, not a pleasant place to be. And a doctor told you to calm down, like 
Oh my goodness. I can't, I can't. And I shared a similar story where a doctor told me that, uh, I needed to just relax. Mm -hmm. And this was when Avery was just a little, little thing. And she was, she was not nursing. She was losing weight. Um, and I was, and we didn't have a diagnosis at that point. And I was obviously my husband and I were absolutely beside ourselves. And he told me that it wasn't a concern. And I was like, okay, guy, like I did not listen to him and I packed her up and I took her right to the hospital and she was admitted on the spot for failure to thrive. And the, I remember the emergency room doctor was like, where have you been? And I, you know, I just broke down It's the struggle to get a doctor to listen. But the fact that he told me to relax, I swear to God, but, um, but I actually ran into him several years ago um, or after that Avery had had another seizure. She was in the hospital and he was the doctor on call. So I marched right up to him and I told him, you know, a bit of Avery's history and stuff and, and what had happened after that. And I said, you know, maybe going forward, you should not tell worried parents to just relax because it's obviously the opposite of relaxing. And that I told him that if I had listened to him, our child may have died. And, um, he actually apologized, which was I, I felt like it, I mean, it didn't change anything, but it gave me no. kind of some closure. Yes. And afterwards, my husband was like, Lisa, I have never loved you more when I was giving that guy hell, you know? So, um, yeah. Oh, it still makes me emotional thinking about that. Like, and it was such a long time ago, but I think we, we all have similar stories like that when we're told just to relax or to calm down. Do you want to share a little bit about what that experience was like for you? Like being told to calm down and to just not take your concern seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this particular instance for us was we were in the emergency room seizures, you know, 911 had brought us there. Um, seizures had calmed and then they started back in a big and scary and distressing way. And that we were being told, oh, well, you know, we'll treat it as soon as the pharmacy brings over the medication and, oh, we'll get around to it. And, And I'm like, I know where the pharmacy is. Does this happen faster if I walk there? If my husband walks there, I can bring my child there. He's not hooked up. Like, how do we move this faster so that my child who is actively and very uncomfortably seizing so that we can do this? Like, what do we need to do? And the doctor's like, oh, they're coming. They'll be here. It's like, okay, when will they be here? Because if it's an hour and a half is not okay. If it's a minute and a half, like we got this. And the doctor was very trying to put me in my place of mm. you need to calm down and your son is going to be worse because you are stressing out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hold up. My son is hearing me advocate for him and his health and his well-being. I will never stop doing that, especially when I'm like, I don't know if my child is going to die tonight. It's like, I'm going to cry. And I'm like, there is no way. I am not going to move every mountain. So when is that getting here? Overall, our medical experience has been very positive. I think there needs to be a tremendous amount of effort with clinicians of as part of their training. Let's make your job easier, especially if you are going into pediatrics. You will be dealing with families and caregivers. 
clinicians, let's make your job easier. Here is what is going to happen with parents. Here are the conversations you will have. How do you deliver diagnosis? There's actually a way to do that. How do you deal with the mom who's freaking out in the emergency room? How, like, by telling me, oh, calm down, meds on the way, I'm going to go have a margarita. Like, you can do that, presumably, but I don't know. You don't know. Um, right? Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, that would go really well with the tacos we were just talking about. Oh, yes, girl. Mm-hmm. Right? It's <laughs> 9 o'clock in the morning, but let's do this. Um, and I believe we need more robust support for clinicians and their yeah. training. And it's not as simple as doctors, you need to be better. Um, we all need to be better. And when people are like, oh, your kid's disabled, don't freak out. I'm like, freak out as much as you need to, because we need to validate however you're feeling and mm-hmm. then build from there. Yeah. I wonder if that's happening. I wonder if in medical training, clinicians are given extra training on how to approach all these situations. I hope so. I think overall from the the people I have spoken with overall, unfortunately, the answer is no. Mm. I think there are certainly isolated instances and programs where it is happening. I believe we are moving towards a point when clinicians will be seeking that out more. And when I speak with clinicians, you know, being doctors, nurses, social workers, like anybody who will listen, mm-hmm. I'm coming to a, a from a place of what information can I give you to make your job easier? Because if your job is easier, then you are able to provide more and better care. Your mental health is protected. My yeah. mental health is protected. Let's do this together because it absolutely is easier if a doctor knows how to deliver a diagnosis in yeah. a way that's not going to like ruin their day and they're going to come home and be like, what a mess this was. Yeah, I agree. Have you ever gone in to see a specialist with your child with uh, a list of questions and research that you've done? And it's either gone where the doctor has said, thank you so much for this information. Do you have medical training? Or to a doctor saying, did you get that from Dr. Google? And then roll their eyes and just kind of like, I mean, it could go either way, but I always, I think would be more comfortable and confident when I'm prepared, when I have the information, when you know what questions to ask and that you're not missing anything. Yes. I have been asked, and I'm sure very many people listening to this have too, like, oh, are you in the medical field? Are you a healthcare <laughs> professional? And I'm like, nope. I'm <laughs> um, that certainly feels good and is a compliment. I think we need to understand so many doctors have parents coming in thinking they have all the answers. Mm-hmm. And so we. the bottom line is we might need this doctor. And this might be the one person in our area. And if I'm not going to get on a plane, I have to deal with this doctor. Sometimes like run screaming from this doctor, but also know if that's a realistic option. Mm -hmm. Um, In the book, doctors that I talked to, there's a whole chapter on working with your medical team, talked about how to be the patient they're excited or the parent of patient that doctors are excited to work with and also what not to do. Come in with your questions, with your charts, with your knowledge, but without a foregone conclusion of this is how this session is going to go and you need to prescribe this thing and we have to do this thing. Be willing to have it be a conversation. Be willing to be wrong. 
Mm-hmm. And also be willing to stand up for yourself if your doctor is snarky and says, oh, you got that from Dr. Google and say, actually, I'm doing the best with the information I have so that we can be partners in this process and I expect to be respected and listened to. That is what we need to do. And that's really hard, especially families who are not confident or who don't speak English as well, or Mm -hmm. there's a racial demographic at play, which is so real. And we need to talk about and train everybody and certainly clinicians in, you know, what all the bias is that's at play. If we are really aiming to serve our children, we all need to be prepared to get educated with real information and also be prepared to say, I have learned new information, whether it's from you in this meeting or from parents or whomever, I've learned new information and my opinion on this has changed. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Cause that's a real fancy way of saying, man, I was wrong, <laughs> which I do that too. It's yep. okay to well, yeah, exactly. And being open and flexible, I think that's going to be so helpful to parents to be able to read that because going into meetings with new doctors and things, it's very intimidating. It's overwhelming. And you don't want to go in there like a bulldozer. You're not going to get very far with that. So I think that's going to be so helpful. Yes. The not being the bulldozer is actually very important because go in, what is your goal? The goal is getting your child the best support and services and care to best support them and who they are and whatever their needs are in that moment, be the phone call that people want to return. If I'm a bulldozer, whether it's with my medical team or whether, you know, whether it's the nurse who answers the phone, Mm -hmm. whether it is in an IEP meeting, nobody wants to call me back if I'm bulldozing and I need to check myself so that I'm not doing that. Well, that's exactly true. And I think that applies to anyone you're dealing with in your child's team, like their supports at school or, or, or whatever. So changing gears just a tiny bit, let's talk about one of my dear, dear loves. And that is social media. I tend to post, you know, a few things now and again. And as someone who spends quite a bit of time on social media, I appreciate that there's a very fine line between celebrating all the cool things, the big achievements and everything that happened with their kids, and then oversharing and completely invading our kids' privacy. So what are your thoughts on sharing our kids' lives on social media? Social media is so hard because for all the reasons, but it is new in terms of we didn't grow up with this. There's Mm -mm. no template for how to do this. Something that people need to know that I believe they don't know, which again, like interviewing disabled experts for the book, like this is how I came across this information, is the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in 1990, which first of all was not that long ago, and second of all was before social media. So know that whatever protections against discrimination and all of these things, there are no laws protecting things that are posted on social media. For example, could your kid legally be discriminated against based on something that someone finds online in terms of getting insurance, in terms of school services supports placement, in terms of future job opportunities, in terms of the residential placement Mm -hmm. that you want for them. If they Google you and your kid and they find, whoa, your kid had this behavior once and we don't do that at our residence. um, 
all of this is fair game. This is not being governed and it is not being talked about. So while I have learned a great deal from so many people who have shared so openly, I also feel conflicted about that because, so first of all, don't post naked pictures or half naked or in their underpants or in the mm -hmm. tub because it's so cute of any child anywhere because there are creepers there. Oh, always. they're everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. And so many disabled adults I've spoken with have said, as humans with disabilities and growing up, we are taught that anybody is allowed to touch our body. We are told that our consent is irrelevant because of all the procedures and things that we have to undergo. Mm -hmm. And we need to think about how are we protecting our child from the creepers? Because it is a whole new ball game when yep. we put disability into the mix and know that what you are posting can legally be used against you and your child into the future because right now this is not governed i mean scary, i went right yeah i i went through my through my instagram a while ago and went way way back into the deep dive and deleted anything that had you know even avery when she was little in a bathing suit things like that those were gone even though they still could be somewhere on the internet i don't know but and you talked about consent which i agree and it sometimes i feel like it's more performative on my part where i'll say to avery you know show her, i show her the picture and i say do I have your consent to post this? And I say all the words. And of course she's going to say yes, because her Instagram videos are her favorite thing to watch. She loves yeah. getting her photo taken. So, I mean, am I really getting your consent? But I try not to post things that she wouldn't be proud of, mm -hmm. you know, in 20 years or yes. things that are, I would never show her crying or having a meltdown or, or just anything like that. But it's an interesting situation. It's, and again, the way that you, in your podcast and your website and everything, validate the reality of intellectual disability, it is a tightrope that we are always walking because don't you tell me that my child does not have the intellectual disability to have agency over his own life mm -hmm. because he actually has a good amount of agency over his life and our great hope and what we are envisioning is that that will grow. So when people are like, well, he can't consent, he can't participate, he can't because he's intellectually disabled, like we need to talk about this. And at the same time, you know, for any parent of a, my son is 10, like for any parent of a 10 year old, even someone who's not cognitively disabled, um, that is still a child and we are still the parent. And even if my child is like, mom, do a YouTube channel with me doing all the things, I still need to be the parent and say, wow, you're excited about that. And you want to be an influencer at age 10, mm -hmm. but also like, yuck. Um, yeah. your job is to like dig holes in the backyard and, you know, laugh yeah. at parts like yeah. you're 10. Your what? job is not to have a job. I guess I'm also 10 because I also laugh at farts, but. <laughs> and you yeah. can dig holes in the backyard because it's awesome. I may do that later. We'll see. Um, yeah. It's an interesting situation that we're in with social media. I love it and I hate it at the same time, you know, but, yes. and I worry Absolutely. about, yeah, I worry about the, the long-term 
effects. But anyway, I am a long-term worrier. Like I like to worry about the long game. So I I think you're probably the same. I need short-term goals that will build toward a long-term plan. Like we're already planning for, you know, 30 years down the road. Mm -hmm. And um, we've talked about us being list list makers and that sort of thing and, and needing tasks to feel in control. My daughter's 17. So she's going to be an adult soon, which I, I can't even go there in my brain, but I'm one of those parents that you've talked about who are kept up at night, just thinking about the, the question, you know, what will happen when I'm gone? I know that's going to happen one day and we're doing the research and we're talking to the experts and we're trying to, we're reading books like yours and trying to figure out all the options, but the worry just doesn't go away. It's heavy and it feels like it's constant. And you talk in your book about what you worry about. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Uh, oh, I worry about all sorts of things. <laughs> um, the Future worry is such this massive cloud of everything. Mm -hmm. And I think there's an amount of worry that any parent does for their child. The where do I even start? And like you said, how do I break this down into manageable steps? Even that can feel overwhelming because nobody knows how to do this. Mm -mm. And to the extent that you are able involving your child in all of that who will become an adult um but also the reality of like there is a 100% chance of the two of us dying hopefully 100 years yeah. from now when we are physically and mentally well and everything is in place yep but i am all about when the things are starting to keep me up at night like yep. make that list of like what are the things we can do mm-hmm. and at the very minimum bare minimum families need to have a will that lists who gets the stuff and who gets the kids and mm-hmm. that includes disabled adult children if that is in place that is a framework and we need to look into what are the real options for when we are not here mm-hmm. for our children who do have support needs, high or, or low support needs. Um, if a child is not going to be able to become an adult who will fully support themselves financially, but also physically and mental and emotionally, a lot of families have kids whose disabilities are not apparent but mental health wise will need a tremendous amount of support always and what is that and we need to realistically look at you know who are the successor guardians is that family member friend are there no options are there many options but a residential placement is actually what my child wants because they don't want to live with mom and dad. They want to be with their peers. Mm -hmm. And what are the wait lists? What are the requirements? And if we just make the list of all the stuff we wish we had answers to and say, okay, and you know, and I, I talk about this in the book of like how to put together this path for yourself and what questions to ask yourself. Yeah just taking these little bits. And I was just talking with friends this week about some of us in this group have successor guardians, some do not. And a successor guardian is just who gets the kids if you fall into a wood chipper. Um, <laughs> let's not do that, right? We've seen Fargo. We know what yeah. Spoiler, but it's an old movie. So mm-hmm. it's cool. 
we all should look into what does a residential placement look like? Because if at any point that becomes appropriate, when I'm 90 years old, I might be doing great, but might not be able to meet the physical needs of my child, hmm. who will also be of a certain age at that point, because he's going to age too. Um, do I want him just sort of thrown into a living situation, whether it's with a cousin or a brother or mm -hmm. whoever, or into a residential facility, when he is also grappling with the grief of my parents are now gone, and my parents are gone, and now I'm being thrown into a situation. How can we say many of our children will outlive us? And I know with some disabilities, the reality, which is scary and stark, but also impacts the planning in a way that there can be a piece to that. And that's okay to say that they might not outlive us. Um, what can we put in place so that it gives us the peace of mind and also gives our children a peace of mind so that they can sleep in talking to experts for the book and talking about the future planning. One of them said, which was so meaningful, he said, I have disabled clients who haven't told their parents, but they're worried and it keeps them up at night that their parents are getting old and there's no plan. And mm. I am not in a position to create that plan for myself. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking like, it, they worry about that too. Yeah, absolutely. I can see that. So, yeah. okay. Well, then it sounds like we both have the same long-term goal worries <laughs> and that you just have to keep doing what you're doing is like talking to experts and getting all the information so that you can piece it together into something that, that lets you sleep at night. So, okay. Yes. Let's talk about your incredible book. First of all, congratulations. I, I can barely sit down to read a shopping list or write a shopping list and you're, you know, writing an entire book. So it's amazing. What actually prompted you to just sit down and get it done? Like at this time in your life and also part two with so many people needing this book, why hasn't something like this been written before? Where, where have you been? Where has it been? Uh, by the way, I've been like under a rock eating Nutella out of the jar <laughs> and like trying to like get some sleep occasionally. Um, Fair. Thank you. I absolutely agree that everyone needs to read this book. This feels like a victory for all of us. And it feels like the effort of many people. Yes, I typed the words, but like, we're all in this together. And the reason it hasn't been written is because nobody has the time for this. And I'm a writer and that's what I do. And I was going to write something. Um, it ended up being this after years of me swearing, I will never write this book. Um, I'm coming from, I used to get paid to come up with ideas for talking animal movies. Oh, I know. Avery's very interested in that. Oh my God. We can, <laughs> we can talk about all the things. Yes. So like has no real world application, by the way, but it's fun. <laughs> and my background is movies and creative writing and fiction. And so I was like, I'm not going to write that book. It's too boring. But the thing that pushed me to finally writing it was a combination of a day when things were like going great. And then they weren't and up all night with the seizures and the vomiting and like lack of control. And my son loves therapy and this one therapist in particular. So once he had gotten some sleep and was good, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to take you to therapy because 
you love this and you guys are going to do an art project with stickers and it's going to be great. And so I took him there. I said, I'm going to sit at the coffee shop next door and I will be here if you need me. And so I was like, I'm going to treat myself to like an overpriced coffee. And I sat down outside and I had my sunglasses on and I was like, I'm going to just like write something because I want to feel like I'm a person getting back to my job because that's my job. And I just started to cry and cry. And like, I just couldn't stop because of that feeling that too many of us know of the rug can get pulled out from under us at any moment. And we had been on a streak of months of great. And then it was just launched back into this. And it was so clear to me that this was the book I needed to write for Mm -hmm. myself as well as for this community. Because the reality is there is so much that is out of our control. We caregivers and especially moms live a life where we need to be, we need to be able to step away from ourselves and our life Mm -hmm. and our job at any moment, potentially for a very long period of time. For me, that period of time was about a decade. Yeah. And it's a long period of time. We are reinventing the same wheels. We do not have the time or the energy or the mental capacity to figure out all of these wheels that we are reinventing. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't take a decade. I was learning so much even as I was writing. It shouldn't take a decade. And the reality of I am a white lady who speaks English. So the demographic boxes I check give me a much farther ahead start in the race of figuring this out and of getting my child what he needs. Mm-hmm. And that is not okay. And that should infuriate all of us. And some of my son's friends have a harder time getting the support because of the demographic boxes they check. Yep. And I am so passionate about how can we start from a place of equal access to real and usable and understandable information. You know, this is written like a conversation. It's not written like I'm a fancy lawyer using acronyms and lawyer speak because that's Mm -hmm. not me. But if we don't have equal access to information we can all use, like what are we even doing? Because this isn't just about my kid or your kid. It really is about the collective thing. And for so many of us, and there are so many moms and parents and caregivers who have amazing books, podcasts, blogs, resources, organizations, and we need this so much. And I felt like this is how I can contribute to the collective conversation Mm -hmm. by saying, here's information that we need. We don't have time to Google for literally a decade to figure this out because our kids will suffer. My kid would be further along in his journey, I honestly believe, if I'd had this book a decade ago. Oh, yeah. So I just feel like caregiving is a job and nobody's teaching us how to do it. And my great hope is people will read this book and say, oh, this is the boring and the paperwork and the planning and all of the stuff of caregiving. 
that no one's teaching me how to do. And here's a way that I can do it and build a journey for myself that is real and is what is actually available and what actually supports my child and also me as a caregiver. Because we can't erase ourselves because when we do, we're under a rock eating Nutella for a decade. Yes. And as much as we love Nutella, it's not exactly living our best lives. So I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm nodding along in agreement and I'm thinking, Kelly, it takes a village. And so <laughs> this, this, this book of yours is going to be like the handbook of our village. You know? I, I Yeah, I love that. You obviously wrote your book from an American perspective, because you're an American parent. And I was thinking that, you know, oh, you know, some of your information might be different from, you know, our Canadian experience. But I, I think you have a Canadian expert in your book. I do. Um, but yeah. Woo. <laughs> but I think that, you know, outside of maybe a couple of laws and policies and things like that, I would say that our experience as parents raising kids with disabilities is pretty universal. Like it's that village that we were just talking about. So how do you think that one book, your book, can be relevant to all families across all locations and disabilities? Mm -hmm. Like how is that going to be our handbook, do you think? Yes. And I'm so glad you asked that. So first of all, my own son, his needs are medical, cognitive, behavioral, physical, fine motor, sensory, like we check a lot of boxes and he does have an undiagnosed overall genetic thing. So I know that there's automatically crossover with my experience and most other people's because he's an overachiever and he just checks all the boxes. I talk a lot in the book of here's what worked for me. Here are the questions to ask yourself and here is where to start. The the most the things that are most specific to the U.S. are really the nitty gritty of like what are mm -hmm. the laws that the U.S. has in place. Um, a friend of mine who read this, who's very analytical, she's neurodivergent and and proudly so, said she just declared she's like seventy percent of this applies to everyone. I'm like <laughs> great seventy percent. Um, I like your math better than mine. It really is about asking better questions and better using information and time and money. Mm -hmm. And so even if I just did a Facebook live with India last week and their services and supports are absolutely different than mine. And even within the U S mm -hmm. it is state to state. And so from one state to the next, it varies wildly. And the point of the book isn't to say, look at me and the stuff that we did. The point is to say, ask better questions to save yourself the time and money and stress so that you can build your journey regardless of the disability, the location, whatever factors. And it's about giving yourself real usable foundational information across disabilities, mm -hmm. your kid may not have epilepsy, may not have a feeding tube, may not have, have autism, may not check the boxes that mine does, but guaranteed we check a lot of the same boxes. And I deeply understand the need for information that we can use. Yes. Usable information, ticking boxes, you're speaking my language. 
Have you, I bet you've heard this expression, I wouldn't change you for the world, but I would change the world for you. You and advocates like you are doing that. And every time you speak about your family's experience, it helps to normalize what it means to raise and love a child who has disabilities. And I think it also takes away some of the stigma and stigma, I think is just fear. People are afraid if they're afraid of what they don't know, or they avoid anything that makes them feel uncomfortable, but they do. Right. And if they understand it or they can at least relate to it somehow, then I think a person's disabilities just become just another thing about them instead of becoming their entire identity. And your book, by the way, like I said, would be an amazing gift for a family who's just gotten a diagnosis or has just found out that their child might need extra supports in some way or whatever the beginning of their journey might be. I think having that guide um, would be so incredibly helpful and reassuring. So I thank you so much for being the person who finally got out from under that rock, put away the, the Nutella and put wait, wait, pen. But would you be impressed if I pulled out a jar of Nutella? And I, like, oh, oh my no, God. It's right here. <laughs> I would right, be very impressed. <laughs> but no, thank you for doing that because we all appreciate it so much. I think it's going to change a lot of people's lives for the better. So I want everybody to go and visit Kelly's website, Kelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y, Coleman.com. I'll put a link in the show notes and you can find her Instagram link there. So you need to go follow her. Plus there's the link to order her book, which is called Everything No One Tells You About Parenting a Disabled Child, Your Guide to the Essential Systems, Services, and Supports. And I'm also going to put the Amazon Canada link in the show notes. And I just want to say a huge thanks to Kelly for being so much fun to chat with and just being an advocate and uh, a new best friend. So like I said, if you're ever in Toronto, you know, hit us up and Avery and I'll take you out for lunch. Thank you. I will absolutely take you up on that. Um, I really appreciate all that you are doing for this community and contributing because I think there are a lot of people who finally find connection when they come across your podcast in your world. So thank you. That means so much. I really appreciate it. You know, sometimes as a podcaster, you feel like you're just speaking into the abyss and it's so nice to be able to actually make real life connections with people who totally get it. So I appreciate that. I appreciate you, Bestie. And everybody go get Kelly's book. It comes out March 12th and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Your support means so much to us. So thank you for sharing the podcast and for cheering us on. It is amazing to see this bright, beautiful community growing in this way. If you have a question, an episode suggestion, or you just want to say hello, we would love to hear from you. So reach out on Instagram or send us an email. Or you can show off your techie prowess by leaving us an audio message by clicking the message button on the Spotify for Podcasters homepage. That link is in the show notes and on the podcast page on the Very Bright Life website. If you liked what you heard today, please consider leaving us a review. More positive comments and five-star reviews nudge the algorithm to deliver this content to more ears. Thanks for listening, and we'll chat with you again soon.